Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and today we're discussing how to read a book. Reading is a big part of every student's life, and so this topic, hopefully, will help you as a student get the most out of your reading. To discuss this with me is Cherie Harder. She not only loves books and reading, but a big part of her role as president of the Trinity Forum is helping others learn to read well and enjoy books as much as she does. Cherie, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Stan. Well, a big part of a student's life is reading. So today we're talking about how to read a book so students can get the most out of their assigned texts, as well as the articles and other books they'll read for research papers. And, and you're one of the most well-read people I know. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about how to read a book. That's kind of say. I don't know that I'm the most well-read, but very happy to talk about it. Well, and I know you're passionate about reading and about books, so that's a big part of it too. So uh, can you share a bit about your journey with with books, how you how you learned to read well? Sure, yes. You know, I was an early reader. Uh, I started probably reading in kindergarten, and I actually sort of vividly remember some of the first books I read as a five and six-year-old and how they just sort of seemed to open up new worlds of, hmm. you know, new imaginative worlds. A lot of the literary heroines that I think I sort of gravitated towards as a kid also loved books. Um, you know, thinking of Anne of Green Gables or um, Jane Eyre, um, it just seemed like most of the the characters that I found the most compelling um, themselves found new worlds opened through reading books. Uh, and often books were not just an escape from difficulty, but in opening up new worlds, they also opened up new possibilities of being in the world that one was in. So really, you know, even as a kid, while I didn't have the language for it or the vocabulary at the time, there was something that seemed really enticing and exciting about reading about the stories about other people who were were so interesting. And yet, you know, it was all available to me. Uh, and, you know, getting a little bit older, I was one of those uh, very annoying high school debate kids, <laughs> you know, who where it was like all about reading all all the time, and and you had to learn to kind of read to understand, you know, what uh, one was talking about, yeah. you know. And since then, you know, as an adult, uh, reading is just a great form of pleasure uh, for me as well. In that, uh, you know, I still believe it opens up new worlds and it shows new possibilities for thinking about both the dilemmas and the delights of the world that one is in. Um, so I, I think there's not only, you know, a, a very sort of instrumental argument to be made. There are great things that accrue to one, you know, professionally and um, academically from learning to read well. But, you know, even more importantly, reading well is sort of a travel guide to life in that it just shows you new places. It helps you make connections that you wouldn't have made before. Uh, and it shows the complexity and the vividness and you know, often the beauty that one might have otherwise missed. I love that phrase, a travel guide to life. I've never heard it put that way, but that's so true. I think we could easily and quickly get into the intrinsic value and pleasures of reading. Both you and I love books because of that. But uh, but let's start with a very practical and pragmatic questions. Mm -hmm. uh, a student has a textbook assigned to read or uh, 
some other text for a research paper he or she is working on. What are some tips or ideas to help that student read well? And by well, I mean in a very pragmatic way to get what he or she needs out of the the book to do the assignment or master the content. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Stan. And um, I sort of feel like to answer it well, one almost needs to distinguish what kind of reading is appropriate in that situation. Mm. Part of what I mean by that is one will read the Bible, one will read poetry very differently than one will read their, say, high school history textbook, um, you know, or even the newspaper, you know, in that part of the way we read, say, um, you know, an article, um, an argument is, you know, we necessarily try to engage with it in terms of understanding its meaning, but we don't necessarily need to dwell uh, with it, to to meditate upon it, to um, imagine ourselves in the place of, you know, the subject of the New York Times article. The, the way that uh, reading the Bible or reading poetry or reading great literature calls us to read in a different way. So, you know, part of it is like what form of reading is most appropriate uh, to the reading material? And I almost feel like I should even back up a little bit more to talk about some of the challenges, I think, to reading well, uh, kind of in our current time, in that uh, the medium through which we get our information and through which we do our reading is not neutral. Mm -hmm. It definitely biases us one way or the other. One would not usually put into an article what one would put into a novel um, or a poem. One reads a tweet very differently than one reads, you know, even a newspaper article. And as more and more of our information streams have become electronic, you know, we're um, spending much more time on social media. That kind of reading is unfortunately affecting our habits um, with other kinds of reading material in really unfortunate ways, I think. How so? Well, when one is barraged by information, the way one is when you're on Twitter or Facebook, um, and especially when a lot of that information is accompanied by images, you know, which hit a different part of our our, our minds. Usually, if or, or if we're on Twitter, there's a you know a, a, a wave of information coming in, and generally people react by skimming and surfing, which is you pay the least amount of attention necessary to essentially strip mine the most shallow of meanings and see if you're actually going to give any more attention to kind of read further. And it kind of trains us to to read that way, to just very surface skimming, taking the most obvious kind of meaning off the top in kind of a strip mining manner. Uh, But then on top of that, what's most likely to catch our attention in the first place is uh, communications which are which are extreme, um, which are you know, negative, which are snarky, uh, which are caustic, you know, the, uh, the sensational, that's what catches our attention. And there's an additional challenge embedded in that because there have been a bunch of studies that have shown that once there's insult or invective, it's actually very hard for people to comprehend accurately what is being said. And the studies are interesting, which is like if let's say you write, you know, a fairly innocuous, straightforward article, but someone responds to you on social media in kind of an extreme caustic way. People who are reading 
know, the response, it will actually shade their impression of your original article simply because already kind of they're um, they're wound up, uh, you know, kind of emotions are involved, right. adrenaline is involved, and it becomes harder to um, to understand. So I think part of what's happening is because we are spending so much time getting our information from forms of media, which bias us towards shallowness, towards sensationalism, towards snark, and essentially addict us to distraction, it becomes much harder to read anything well that that's more than, say, you know, 280 characters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when... Um, when reading a novel, reading great literature, or reading the Bible, I think we're called to read in a very different way. You know, part of reading great literature, as opposed to even reading a good essay, literature calls on our imaginations um, and our empathy, as well as reason and analysis. And we're invited to you kind of essentially enter into that world of the novel. Mm -hmm. And part of reading well is, is imagining ourselves there, you know, imagining the characters and the setting and the place and what one might feel in that moment if one were in that setting. And it's that kind of sort of visualization and uh, imaginative projection that actually does help uh, both evoke and I think deepen our sense of empathy with others. You know, um, the Bible, you know, Eugene Peterson has written a lot about this and really beautifully. And he has a book uh, sort of provocatively titled, Eat This Book. Mm -hmm. And part of what he's talking about there is, um, you know, to to really ingest a book like the Bible, you, you don't um, speed read it. You know, you don't strip mine it for the most surface of meanings. You know, there is a great deal there that you're not going to get with a quick skim of the page. If you speed read the Psalms, you're not going to get the full meaning. If you speed read, you know, the Gospels, you simply won't. Mm -hmm. Part of it requires study, yes, but also dwelling with it, meditating upon it. It's uncanny how often the Bible tells us to meditate upon the words. Um, there's entire spiritual disciplines, Lectio Divina, where you simply kind of soak in the words. And we're told that those words have life, have real creative power. Uh, so I think part of you know learning to, to read literature well, uh, it definitely involves slowing down. It involves uh, the use of the imagination. It involves interrogation, which sounds really uh, sort of unpleasant, but really means just sort of asking questions like, well, why would they do that? Uh, is that what I would do? Oh, why do they react that way? And that's also one way that helps develop our sense of what good literature is. Because when we ask those questions, the responses of the characters ring true. Uh, they make sense to us. We can see, yeah, that actually, that kind of thing does happen in reality. And in fact, one of the one of the ways to distinguish between great literature and so-so literature is that when we interrogate the text, it doesn't really make sense. You know, Wendell Berry talked about how bad books always lie and they lie the most about the human condition. Mm. You know, propaganda is trying to manipulate us into doing something. Great literature describes the world in its fullness, you know, as it is. This is so helpful. I think uh, not only does this apply to the world of 
literature in the sense of novels and quote unquote fiction, but applies to the science textbook and the engineering text that's very technical and specific to a certain field, right? I uh, had a student come to me uh, about a year ago who was a freshman who had an intro to philosophy class as a part of his basic curriculum and uh, is much more oriented toward the, the applied sciences. And so was really struggling to read the these texts, which were sustained arguments over a four, five, six, eight page span. You know, one premise discussed and then a second one, which follows from that and, and a third, which adds to that and a conclusion that that all leads to. And it was so different from his world of social media where there really isn't a way for there to be a sustained argument made. Mm -hmm. It's just so, again, soundbitey and short, and it's just not made for that kind of engagement. And so he was really struggling to read and understand these longer, more nuanced, more sustained arguments that develop a theme. And so we had to talk, talk that through that this is a different type of literature. This is a different genre. You don't read this the way you read a tweet or a Facebook post. You have to step back and slow down and outline it and see the connections and think about it in a, in a, in a deeper way. And so I don't care what you're studying. The things you're saying are relevant. That is such a great example, Stan. And, um, you know, I, I think a couple of things that that illustrates. One is just any challenging text requires attentiveness and attention. Mm. Uh, and that's something that um, essentially our most used information streams mitigate against. You know, the whole purpose is to distract you and to addict you uh, as opposed to invite you into sustained attention. Um, you know, another thing that implied in what you said is you know, just the the linear and logical nature of that philosophy text. Mm. You know, you start with a premise, you build on that. You know, what you have built leads to different uh, different conclusions. And then there's different implications of those conclusions. And if you took out one of those kind of one of those building blocks, the whole thing might fall apart. And reading a philosophy textbook actually forms one's thinking in a very different way because you expect, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for the premises to be clear and defined as such for each step of the reasoning to be sound and to hold and for the conclusions to follow logically from what has been said before. We're being formed in very different ways when we get our information from social media, where, as you just said, there's no opportunity at all by the nature of the medium itself you know, to make a sustained argument. And what gets rewarded and positively reinforced in terms of retweets and likes and uh, posts and all that is when you are the quickest you know, the wittiest, the snarkiest, or the most extreme. Mm. And in many ways, that forms uh, one's thinking in a very different way than a philosophy textbook does. You know, there's no overlap practically on the Venn diagram. Mm. So I think one of the things that's also just really important for anyone to think about it, but particularly students, since they're fairly, you know, relatively new into the process, is what you read helps form you. You know, choose wisely. You know, if you are spending your most of your waking hours ingesting social media, that is not neutral. You know, it is shaping your assumptions about the world in a very different way than if you're spending it reading a philosophy textbook or even reading a novel. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and that's true not only between social media and text, but in textbooks themselves, there are different worldviews, different ideas being promoted and sometimes very vigorously argued for. So how do you read with a discerning spirit to identify those underlying assumptions or viewpoints that are being pressed? Well, you know, I, I think one thing, just as we were talking about, it's sort of important to distinguish between both form and content. Mm. So you know, the form, where we get our information, the kind of things we are reading, that is not neutral, you know, as um, as we were just sort of talking about. Reading a philosophy textbook, even if the content of that philosophy is harmful and destructive, does train one to think differently than if one is just reading lots of flaming on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I think the form is really important for us to kind of just understand how that affects not only what we think about, but how we think. And in many ways, I think if a lot of one's grounding is in you know philosophical textbooks, one may be much better equipped to recognize the destructive argument, the content that goes awry, um, and certainly is in a much better place to critique harmful, destructive, or untrue content, uh, because one has much more of an ability to sort of think logically in a linear way and to be able to recognize, oh, this is where I see the argument going astray. And here are the implications, and this is where it ultimately leads. You know, without the kind of grounding in the form, um, you're kind of left with like, oh, I don't like that which is a very different place to be than, you know, here is where uh, the thinking has gone awry. And that is the value, as you well know, to the humanities and why in any curriculum uh, at a university, there is a core of literature, history, philosophy that's required to develop those critical thinking skills. But more and more students are pressed earlier and earlier into tracks that, that limit that. Sometimes even in our district, for instance, uh, in a high school, you can choose to go into an engineering focus and you get into college and that's really what your focus is. So a lot of students, their reading is going to be, I'll just stay with the example of, say, a mechanical engineer, math and physics that doesn't engage as much of these ideas and issues and sustained arguments that you, you would get in the humanities. So how does that student really wrestle through Uh, When they do have a class where they're engaging a worldview that is problematic or they they sense there's something awry here, Mm -hmm. how do they read discerningly when they don't really have as much of that background? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. And, um, of course, I would argue that um, even for engineers, especially for engineers, you know, reading widely is, um, is a great thing to do. Whether or not one thinks it will make them a better engineer, it will certainly make them a more interesting, imaginative, informed, and delightful human being, which um, presumably all of us, including engineers, are, are interested in, in being. Um, so I think the humanities are not just for humanities majors. You know, I also think it is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing to encounter ideas that one disagrees with, even to encounter ideas that one knows these are wrong um, and there are harmful consequences to them in that that reflects the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking earlier about a travel guide to life. Uh, you know, there's a lot of life that is destructive and we need to to face it and know how to deal with it. 
I'm plucking this slightly out of context, but only slightly. You know, C.S. Lewis talked at one point about Eustace Clarence Scrub, who um, we know, you know, the character that he uh, started off, you know, thinking of this character was problematic just because of the name. And he, you know, who, who deserved it. Yes, he did. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis says about Eustace Scrub, where we know, like, oh, yeah, this kid's got issues, is he says that Eustace didn't like to read stories. He used he liked to read about exports, imports, and plumbing drains. Yes. In other words, you know, Eustace had no need for stories. It was all about information he could instrumentalize, you know, for his own advancement. Uh, but he never read stories about dragons, is what Lewis said. And so what happens, of course, is Eustace does encounter a dragon. And having never read stories about those dragons, he didn't know what to do once he had encountered it. And I think, you know, it is a good thing for us to uh, to wrestle with, to be acquainted with books where with messages that we are either are new to us, might be scary to us, or that may be counter to some of our deeply held beliefs, to, to better understand them, to better understand where they're coming from, uh, to kind of think through how does one get there. Uh, people yeah. rarely arrive at the conclusions they do out of thin air. There's almost always reasons that they got to where they got, even if it is a, a, a wrong place or a bad place to be in. Uh, and I think it's really helpful for us to to understand that. Mm -hmm. And to that point, back to our earlier conversation of reading carefully, mm -hmm. reading slowly, reading and outlining what's being argued to see the connections and perhaps the broken connections where these premises were discussed and then this conclusion was drawn, but wait a minute, uh, that doesn't follow from those things that were being discussed earlier in this chapter. And so that value of learning to read in a discerning way, contrary to, again, social media is so helpful when you're encountering books that are articulating ideas that are foreign or or antithetical to your beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, one also discovers very quickly that it's fairly rare uh, to find an author, particularly an author not of our time or place uh, with whom we uh, agree almost entirely. You know, Alan Jacobs talked about um, in his wonderful book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, uh, you know, the past is a foreign country. And when we read books from the past, we will inevitably encounter ideas or just assumptions uh, that run very counter to our own. And even among some of the, the great and most humanitarian minds of past centuries, there were a lot of assumptions that were accepted that we would all say are very unjust. It both inculcates, I think, a certain analytical ability to be able to sift through things, as well as an understanding like, oh, some of the great minds of years past got really important stuff wrong. If great minds of past centuries got really important stuff wrong, what are the blind spots of our own time? What am I just accepting that maybe I shouldn't? Good reading will bring up those questions, and especially reading books of other times and of other places. Well, and I've seen that as I've, in my current role, done a lot of travel internationally. Inevitably, I will enter a new country, a new culture. And I'm confronted with assumptions that are just different than I have here that I can't even fathom because they're just so much. So they're so different from what I just take to be the way things are. 
And uh, to your point, it's the same with reading people and those ideas of other times. You're just entering a different world and asking questions you might not ever be led to ask or critiquing things you assume just to be the case that you might not ever hear somebody question. Yeah. And I think that's a point C.S. Lewis makes well in his article on reading old books, yes. I believe is the title. Yes. You know, it's not, it's not that, that they got everything right. right. Uh, they got things wrong, but we'll oh. spot their errors, but they don't have our errors. So they'll point out ways to look at things that we can benefit from and, and avoid some errors that we just make because everybody else is making the same error and we don't know any better. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Lewis's point about uh, one should read an old book for every current book one reads just to avoid chronological snobbery, I think is what he called mm-hmm. it. But you know, your point too, reading books from other cultures around the world is also a really helpful corrective. It's hard to identify our own biases and assumptions unless they're held up to us that way. You're like a fish mm-hmm. doesn't know it's wet. Part of the thing that happens when one uh, reads broadly, um, widely, is one encounters the fact that like, oh, there are very smart uh, and wonderful people who make a very different assumption um, about this than, than I do or that I even thought about. That's part of the way one's world becomes more broad is encountering that difference. It's really good. Can I toss out um, a few other ideas on reading well? Yes. You know, we talked about kind of reading old books, reading books from other cultures, uh, kind of interrogating the que- the text, asking questions of it, paying attention to it, which you know seems so straightforward, but is so hard to do because you know more and more we're just wired to be distracted to like kind of uh, surf and skim and whatnot. I also think reading slowly is important. Rereading is a great thing. One of the things, you know, I'm uh, now that I'm getting older, you know, I've reread several books and realized that they have struck me very differently now than they would have, say, 20 years ago. And obviously the text didn't change. You know, what changed? I changed. And, uh, you know, one learns like how a great text, you know, whether it's a great novel or even, you know, a great essay or whatever, uh, there's a timeless quality because, you know, what it communicates is timeless, but it also evokes different things in the reader. It draws upon different experiences. It provokes different questions. And there's enough depth in the work that that stands the test of time. So I think rereading is actually kind of one of the the real pleasures of um, of encroaching middle age or even kind of, uh, you know, once you hit your 30s or, or 40s and realizing like the books that one loved when you were, say, you know, 15, 18, uh, and then you reread them and you get so much more out of them. And related to that, reading with others is um, mm. is a great way to read more deeply. If a parent and a student, you know, are interested in the same text, that's a great thing to read together because it's almost guaranteed that they will get different things out of it and ask different questions. And there's something about that experience of reading together uh, where one not only gets a much deeper understanding of of the novel or the essay or the text, but one gets a better understanding of oneself and the person that you're reading with. And so related to that, also I'm just a big fan of the reading group. And in many ways, um, well, there's so many arguments to be made for a reading group, but, you know, we're currently kind of in a crisis of 
you know, on a national scale of, of loneliness, distraction, fragmentation, alienation, triviality, division, polarization, all that kind of stuff. And what is a reading group? It is a small group of people all focusing their attention on a worthy text in a spirit of hospitality and community. In many ways, it is exactly the opposite of the things that are afflicting us as a nation. It's like a tiny little bit of immunotherapy to a, a cultural cancer. So I think there's civic benefits as well as personal benefits, intellectual benefits, and, and real relational benefits. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of what we do at the Trinity Forum in terms of hosting reading groups, hosting Socratic discussions where people are together discussing, you know, a common text. It's a it's amazing how people bond, how friendships are formed in that um, a good novel, people will inevitably bring their own perspectives and thoughts and experience. And there's a way that's sort of disarming, you know, a sharing of oneself. Mm-hmm. I do want you to say a little bit more uh, about your work with the Trinity Forum in a little bit, but uh, but let me let me observe and comment on the value also of reading groups. Uh, not only, and you didn't call this out per se, but it's implied. Not only are they valuable for students, I think, when they have a a, a textbook or a novel that they have to read in class to get together and talk about what they're reading and how they're understanding it, because they can learn from one another. Uh, somebody sees a very important point that somebody else met, misses that's going to show up on the exam for very practical reasons. It's good to talk to to your your classmates about these things. But equally and, and arguably in the long term, more important is the reading group that's uh, not just driven by the, hey, I want to pass the test and understand you know this for the for the the grade, but really to be shaped. Uh, I'm very proud of my my oldest son, Ryan. He's a, a senior at the University of Kansas this year and has actually been disappointed by the level of content he's been able to find in the Christian groups on campus, uh, is really wanting to, uh, to, to have a little deeper discussion about biblical texts and, and, and theology and Christian thought. So he formed a reading group with a few guys and are selecting books that they want to read that will really press them, yeah. that they, they would say are not easy in the sense of these are just an easy lift. You don't go to the weight room to lift things you can lift. Uh, you go to the weight room to lift things that really are hard to lift. And because of that, you grow. And so they're reading uh, actually right now a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, a book on hermeneutics. Yeah. And how do you actually appropriately interpret biblical text, which actually applies to other texts as well? Really, really proud of him and impressed that, you know, he he understood and took that step. And it's a step that I think all students could benefit from is just find a small group of friends that want to read some things together that will help them in their spiritual journey. Uh-huh. Didn't have to be a big deal or, you know, hours on end to get together, you know, at the union and talk for an hour once every week or two about it. But, uh, you know, reading groups I've found in my life, and I, I, I know from the reports I've gotten from him are so so valuable for the reasons you mentioned. I just totally want to double click on that. Um, you know, you, you were mentioning even just the the practical value and, and there is great practical value. They will definitely understand text a lot better. There's a very good reason why most business schools essentially organize around putting people in small groups mm. and those groups together 
read case studies and discuss them. Like there's a good reason why business schools do that. And, you know, it's, um, it's not empathy. <laughs> it's the practical benefit. But far more than that, as you were saying, it's highly likely that not only will your son uh, and the, the friends who are doing the reading group with him, you know, really have far more insight, appreciation, love, understanding of the text, but most likely there'll be a bunch of deep friendships that will come out of that as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of thinking is relational and, you know, doing that together, there is a real bonding and cultivation of, uh, of relationship that happens almost inevitably. Absolutely. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Well, I mentioned something that I would like you to comment a little on from your perspective that uh, is also under that heading, how do you read well? And maybe one of the most important things for students to understand to read a book well, and that is technically the hermeneutical circle. I became familiar with this as I read a book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler, mm-hmm. which seemed sort of, uh, you know, like, okay, I've got to know how to read a book to read the book, but I'm reading the book. and But it really helped me because it helped me see how I wasn't reading books well. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about how that can be useful to students as they try to engage their textbooks and other readings? Yeah. With any challenging text, as one plunges into it, to think about where was the set? Who's doing the speaking? Is the narrator reliable? Who are the characters that are involved? How do they know each other? What are the conflicts here? What are we building towards? You know, in many ways, it's the same questions we would ask ourselves, even unconsciously or subconsciously, about the social situations we find ourselves in. Sure. What's going on here? Who said that? Who are they? How are they related to these people? Uh, But basically, just to do the the intellectual but also imaginative work of thinking through what's going on. Where is this um, placed? What are the conflicts? What are the constraints? Who's talking? Do I trust them? What are they trying to get me to do? Is that true? The the questions that a well-developed sense of curiosity um, would lead us to ask. Mm-hmm. Amor Adler talks a lot about interrogating the text, asking questions of it narrators, like people, are not always reliable. Yeah, It's almost like one of the, the shifts that happens in the literature that students in high school are exposed to. You know, usually, you know, as an elementary student, you know, perhaps even an early junior high, usually one reads 
fiction where the their narrator is um, assumed to be omniscient. Um, and one of the sort of intellectual developmental shifts uh, that usually happens is when one is a teenager is being introduced to the idea that narrators like people have blind spots, have ulterior motives, often have agendas, um, may be very earnest, but just have insufficient information. Uh, and so to approach a novel um, or a great work of literature like one does a real life situation. And it's that kind of, um, you know, kind of interpretation and approach to the text that yields, you know, much deeper insights into what's going on, not only in the text, you know, but life more broadly. And, you know, I like to help students make the connection between how they've learned, hopefully, <laughs> to read the biblical texts and reading any other texts, right? Because we teach, hopefully we teach from an early age as students are growing up in our churches, they're coming to faith, they're starting to grow, that, well, one, there are different genres in Scripture, so you don't read the Psalms as poetry like you read Acts as historical narrative. Yes. And secondly, there is a, a circle that you continually go around and around in as you approach a text, just let's say it's Romans, right? You ask the big picture questions first. Who wrote this? Why was it written? Who's the audience? What's the occasion? You know, you just are asking those questions that frame the whole book. And then you read the specific chapter. And so you're going from the, the very macro to the micro, but you're always then circling back to, okay, how does this particular thing fit into the bigger picture? I already understand of purpose, occasion, so on and so forth. And then back into the details, it's the forest and trees, right? Always back to, okay, how does this tree fit in the forest? Uh, now that I understand the forest, how do I understand the trees better? And so it's just making that jump then from, okay, that's how I read biblical texts to now that's how I read my, my assigned book in physics or in literature or in art, right? Who's the author? Why is he or she writing this book? What's the occasion? How do these chapters fit in? I always find it very helpful to read on the back. Yeah. Give me the in, in one little paragraph what the publisher really wants me to know about this book, and then read the introduction and the table of contents, big picture, and you start diving in, but then always referring back to those bigger picture ideas. And that alone, I think, is something that I've seen help students maximize reading in ways mm -hmm. as they broaden that shift from just scripture to all literature in this way to really get a lot out of what they're assigned. You know, that's such a great point, Stan. And um, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, even encouraging students to think about why was this particular genre selected? You know, now sometimes the answers are fairly straightforward. You know, rarely does one see, you know, a physics textbook and iambic pentameter. Um, it might be interesting, but it would be unusual. You know, sometimes the, the genre is fairly straightforward, but other times it's not necessarily. Like, why Why is this a book of poems? You know, the Psalms, why are these Psalms, you know, as opposed to narrative? And, you know, even within that, of course, not only did, uh, did the author of Psalms, you know, choose that particular genre, but within that, there's also uh, different Forms of wordplay. There's different acrostics. Uh, there's a particular, you know, beauty uh, and aesthetic structure too that was employed. Um, why did he do that? But even understanding some of the aesthetic structures, the the acrostics, the the poetry, the um, you know, the meter, the verse, lends us to kind of um, once we understand, kind of delight in the beauty uh, of 
you know, certain forms of, of literature as well. Yeah. The craftsmanship that goes into it. Yes. Yes. Well, Hey, here's another practical question. When is it important to a student read an entire book? And when is it important to a student not read an entire book? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, look, very prosaic. If the student is assigned the entire book, they should probably read it. You know, just, it, it will be good for them, you know, in terms of the test. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if you're reading it for pleasure and you really dislike it, I don't know that you have to just kind of, kind of keep soldiering through. Now, if you're reading it uh, because, again, you're in a reading group um, that's going to meet on it, I think it's worthwhile to continue on. Um, sometimes things all do all come together, you know, at the end. And so that's really, I think, largely a balancing act. You know, time is limited. Uh, there's a lot of claims on our time. You know, some yeah. of that is just, you know, prudential judgment. Uh, do you have like a, a particular rule or principles that, that guide guide that, Stan? Uh, well, it depends on whether I'm reading for pleasure or for uh, some other yeah. specific end. Yeah. If it's for pleasure, uh, it's pretty simple. If I'm really engaged, I keep reading. And if not, I don't waste my time. But if it's for if it's for a research paper, maybe, mm-hmm. or I've got to, you know, study for a test, then it, it's very rare that I would read a whole book. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was a struggle I had when I was doing research and finding all these these cited textbooks or sources I should also look at and thinking, I got to read that too. And I got to read that too. And it turns out I didn't. I needed to read about four pages that was related to the thing I was researching and writing on. So nine times out of 10, I did not have to read the whole book or an entire chapter, but just a little section. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember being in a uh, a professor's house when I was uh, in, in college and he just had a massive library. And I said, how in the world did you read all these books? He said, oh, I didn't read all these books. Uh, I've read in all these books uh, <laughs> because they all in some way relate to something I'm, I'm, I've studied and I wanted it on my shelf to refer back to, but I certainly haven't read them all. Yeah. Uh, so that was an aha moment for me yeah. that you, you know, you, you, you're very judicious in exactly what you need out of a book and you read that and you read that well, mm-hmm. but you don't feel like you've got to read everything. Right. And again, the hermeneutic circle helps because if you get the context of the book, why it's being written, the big picture and all that, then you can zero in and really make sense of that little part yes. in, in light of the whole. That's a good thing to bring up. And it's sort of bringing me back to like discovering, you know, it in high school or early college, like, oh, most works of nonfiction will tell you in the first chapter or two, mm-hmm. essentially, here's why they are writing the book. Mm-hmm. And here's what, you know, essentially the the structure of the book will be in chapters two and three. We'll look at this and chapters four, five and six. We'll turn to this. We'll conclude on yes. this. And like so usually you can find within the first chapter, certainly within the first two, here's what the book is going to tell me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even as my uh, debate coach would you know, say to all of us, you know, with any extemporaneous speech, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you've told them. And so there's a lot of times, yeah, you can basically look at the book because books kind of nonfiction books follow that same structure as well. Look at what they are going to tell you and um, and then be able to pinpoint where it is that they're going to say what you are most interested in, in finding it. Right. And, you know, usually that first chapter will also say, you know, here's why I'm writing it. And, um, you know, and I think that's an important point to know as well, that most books are written in conversation with each other, at least most books worth reading. Mm-hmm. So they are usually in response to something or provoked by something. And that reading that early chapter will help get one a sense of, oh, not only what are they going to say, 
but why are they saying it? Who are they responding to? Who influenced the thought? Um, right. And and just learning to read that way as well. And and I think at times too, just even uh, quickly flipping to the back to see who they cite can be very helpful mm-hmm. in knowing like, oh, okay, who did they consult in writing this book? And it will also kind of show you know who they're responding to, who whose views they're considering. Yeah, that's uh, that's so helpful. I've got an, an illustration of that. It's a, a book that's very popular called Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson. Yes. And uh, I'm interested in what the soul is, mm-hmm. how the soul is related to the body or the mind to the brain specifically. So I picked this up because the subtitle is Surprising Connections Between Neuroscience and Spiritual Practices That Can Transform Your your Life and Relationships. So uh, that that's right in, in my area of interest. So I picked the book up. And one of the first things I did, and I'm again, I'm trying to get the big picture. Who is it? Why is he writing this? What's the point? And I look in the back and everybody that he cites as really helpful sources and his sources are people who, one, work in neuroscience, although he's writing in the field of philosophy of mind, mm-hmm. and secondly, are written in the last 50 years, whereas this conversation has gone on since Plato. And so uh, as I read it, it helped me understand a, a number of things he missed in his analysis because he was only reading scientists, not philosophers, who really deal even more with the soul and how it relates to the body, and only folks right in the last 50 years not in touch with the longer conversation that's gone on for, for millennia. That was kind of helped me understand who this is, why it's being written, what the strong points will be. Again, when he gets into the neuroscience itself is very helpful, but where the problems might be, and in fact were, where he tried to connect that to what the soul is and how the soul then relates to the body, uh, that there were some really problematic things there that I think he just he just was unaware of because, again, his context, his background, his dialogue with other authors and ideas was just so limited, both time-wise and discipline wise. So that's an example of how reading the broader context, authors, uh, sources, and so on and so forth can help you as you start to get into the details, tie those into the bigger picture and really understand the book better. Yeah. And actually that particular author, um, I know his subsequent books have been, have, have actually referenced a lot of philosophers. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing that one learns even in writing a book is there's so much one can draw on, you know, and part of the, the challenge, of course, is limiting it. But I also think it tends to open up new lines of inquiry. Right. Uh, such that, you know, his most recent book, uh, The Soul of Desire, uh, draws, I think, quite a bit on Augustinian philosophy. Mm. Another source of summaries beyond just what's in the book, uh, they're, you know, online reviews or, or, or quick summaries that maybe somebody's put up on an Amazon page for the book. How helpful do you find those to get an idea of whether a book is helpful to read or what the book's all about? You know, short answer is it depends. Um, obviously, if if one is sort of curious, it can be very quite helpful to be like, well, what's the book about? Does that continue to intrigue me? You know, do you trust the source? Uh, so, you know, it, yeah, it, it really does depend you know, in some ways, that's almost akin to asking, like, how well does Cliff Notes really summarize, you know, what a book says? Well, mm. um, yeah, the Cliff Notes will give you like the basic plot outline of what happened. And, you know, they'll be pretty reliable in terms of that. And that definitely has a certain value, especially if you have not read the book at all. And the test is tomorrow. You know, <laughs> there is right. um, there's practical value to that. 
Uh, will you miss a lot? Absolutely, you will. You know, you will miss all the character development. You'll miss, uh, you know, a lot of the complexity. You'll you'll miss the moral dilemmas. You'll miss the constraints. Mm. You'll miss a lot of the drama, a lot of the beauty. So, um, is there a certain value? Yes. Uh, is that value limited? And um, in some cases, you missed out on the best stuff. Yes, as well. Really good point. And I would add that the hermeneutic circle comes into play a little bit again, even in reviews. Yes. Who is this person? What are this person's credentials to write a review? Does this person have an axe to grind? Absolutely. Reviews often seem to be one more small bat, you know, culture war battleground. And I think one should read it that way, knowing that a lot of the reviewers have, um, you know, there's a particular agenda. Um, and sometimes it's not at all about, you know, it's not an ideological one. It's just someone either likes the author or doesn't like the author or mm -hmm. someone likes the approach or disagrees with it or someone feels aggrieved because they weren't quoted or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, people are people, even when it comes to reviews. Yeah. Well, you know, Terry, we live in a digital age, so there's more and more ebooks. Is there value to reading printed books or over ebooks or of reading ebooks over printed books or does it depend and if so on what? As you know, Stan, there's a whole debate about this and people get really worked up on this. Yes. And 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 let's keep it to the student in the university context. Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, a couple of things, you know, there are some studies that show um or purport to show that um people retain information or just you know kind of impressions of the book better, you know, reading a hard copy than reading online. So, you know, want to just be kind of upfront. There's definitely studies that show that, mm. that, um, you know, more understanding, greater retention, that sort of thing. Uh, speaking personally, I definitely prefer, you know, just having kind of like, you know, the incarnated book, like the actual artifact. And part of that is when I read, I underline, I write in the margins, and that's a way that um, that that helps me, I think, kind of go deeper into the book. And especially when I reread the book or if I reread the book years later, it, it's also kind of a, its own kind of, I don't know, almost emotional archaeology. Like what struck me back then that uh, does the same thing strike me now? You know, there's mm -hmm. in a way it feels like a deeper personal investment in the book to do that with, with a physical book. Uh, you know, at the same time, I know many people who swear this is so much easier, so much quicker. I can still highlight, you know, with my electronic tools. I will not have back problems that you will because you've, you know, been hoisting around so many, you know, 20 pounds of books in your backpack, you know, during your formative years. Uh, so there's arguments to be made on, on both sides. And certainly it is lighter easier, quicker to read on ebooks. I feel like something is lost, at least for me. But um, but I, I do think in a way that question is less important than than finding the way of reading that works, yeah, you know, that, that works best for you in terms of being able to read deeply, being able to access what you read, and being able to comment on on what you've read. Well, and I think that's the greatest limitation of ebooks for full disclosure. I all things being equal, prefer ebooks because I travel a lot. Uh, I can take yeah. four or five books with me. Uh, obviously, I could take millions of books with me if I wanted to download them all. And I can annotate a little bit by highlighting and putting little notes in it. Uh, but it's not quite the same as writing in the margin of the book. And I think especially for students who are working through a textbook to be able to make those handwritten notes 
And, you know, the flow of the argument and the arrow from this down to this of here's the premise, here's the conclusion, whatever it is, yeah. you, you can't get in the environment. Now, I think actually you might be able to in the next X years, next five years, there might be that technology where you do that in that form. But right now, unfortunately, you can't. So if a student is struggling reading electronically, they might just need to go pick up a paper copy of it. Yeah. And one thing I would add to, if someone does read on eBooks, turn off notifications. Mm. Because one of the real you know, dangers, I think, to, deep, uh, to any kind of uh, deep reading or quality reading is distraction. And, um, you know, of course, one, if one's reading on your computer, on your phone, whatever it is, if you have constant dings, you will, it, it will undermine your attempts to read well. Such a good point. Well, let's turn to, for the last few minutes here, reading for fun. We've talked about the value of this, not just after students graduate, but while they're in school, they should be reading things that aren't just what they've got to read for class, hard as that might be. You mentioned some of the values of, of quote unquote, pleasure reading or reading that doesn't have instrumental value just to pass a test. And uh, you've seen that in your work with Trinity Forum. So I'd like to give you a chance to say a little bit about your work there with Trinity Forum uh -huh. and how you've seen this really help those you've engaged flourish through their reading. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Stan. So uh, I've been at the Trinity Forum for about 14 years now. And part of what we try to do is to cultivate, curate, and disseminate the best of Christian thought leadership and provide a space where leaders can grapple with the big questions of life in the context of faith. And some of the ways that we do that, uh, we we do have regular, uh, both online and in-person, we call them online conversations or evening conversations, where we get to interview different Christian thought leaders on uh, various topics. Uh, but we also do Socratic forums and reading groups. But you know, we also publish quarterly readings. So um, you know, once a quarter, we basically take what we consider one of the um, both modern uh, and uh, older, whether it's an essay or a poem or um, an excerpt from a novel, uh, worthy reading that, is, that stands the test of time, that raises big questions about the human condition. We kind of think all big questions are ultimately spiritual questions. Mm -hmm. And we uh, provide a short introduction, kind of saying why it's important, you know, what the context is. You're kind of starting the hermeneutic circle, as you were talking about, and then add discussion questions in the back so that it's essentially set up to either read alone or um, with a book club. And actually, along those lines, we just uh, rolled out something we're calling the book club box, which is almost a reading group starter kit for anyone who would like to start their own reading group, uh, just because we think it's, this is really important. As we were sort of talking about earlier, uh, at a time when our country is largely riven by loneliness and fracture and distraction and anger, uh, reading together something worthy and challenging in a spirit of hospitality is essentially kind of an embodied liturgy that mm. pushes back against uh, a lot of the the forces of atomization. That's really good. Well, Sheree, we, uh, we should draw to a close. Is, is there anything else you want to make sure you touch on before we wrap up? You know, I think we covered just about all of it. Um, it this was a great conversation. It was a good conversation. <laughs> great to talk with you, Stan. So lastly, um, where can listeners go to get more information? Uh, you know, mention your website with the training forum, but also in terms of reading any books or websites or podcasts that you know of that could help them think more about how to read a book well? 
So yes, our website is www.ttf.org. TTF stands for the Trinity Forum. And there uh, your listeners can find, you know, our 100 reading titles. Uh, They can find the book club box. They can also find our online conversations. Uh, We have, I think, over 80 of them now. And quite a few of them are on reading. Uh, Reading in community, reading for regeneration, uh, reading for justice, and would uh, encourage people to check those out. Uh, another a couple of authors that uh, I'd recommend, you know, you mentioned earlier Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. Um, Jessica Hooten Wilson has several good books out on reading, including Reading for Regeneration, which I would definitely recommend. And the book um, Proust and the Squid, I think, is also uh, an excellent one to read on reading. Perfect. Well, Cherie, so good to talk to you. Appreciate everything you've said. It's just really, really insightful. Oh, that's kind to say. Well, fun to catch up with you, even if it's um, over a podcast. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.